So each evening we'll be having a talk at this time and the intention of the talk is to bring together an understanding of the practice and particularly where we are at this point in the retreat or at a particular point in the retreat to integrate hopefully to uh, share some of my experience and other others experience to hopefully energize, inspire and perhaps even mildly entertain you. So, um, so our retreat is on the theme of uh, cultivating clear seeing and opening the heart and the suggestion is that these two are very deeply connected. And in fact, as I was mentioning earlier in talking about metta, that when our clear seeing becomes mature, it very much is, um, has a quality of warmth and care and love. And the same way that when our care and love is mature, it has the qualities of insight and wisdom. And so that sense of integration is really uh, what uh, in many ways motivates the theme of the retreat. In traditional accounts of the teachings of the Buddha, it's often said that the teachings or sometimes said the Dharma or the, the um, core teachings of liberation are like a bird that has two wings. And the wings are wisdom and compassion. And one has to have both or you don't fly. We don't soar, we don't uh, have that quality of um, moving with grace and ease and spaciousness. The bird has two wings, but in some ways the learning process that works for most of us is to focus on one of the wings at a time. As we're, I, don't, I think the metaphor is breaking down at this point, but the, the sense that we, we develop wisdom, we develop compassion, and we really, in a sense, can focus on either one. So we are focusing today uh, at certain sittings on mindfulness and at other uh, sittings on loving kindness. And we'll be doing some chanting this evening. I think as we mature in our practice, they do become integrated, but they can certainly are different practices as we are in the learning cycle. However, the, I think holding the understanding that they're deeply connected is important. And I wanted just to share with you uh, one of the ways that this is expressed quite beautifully is in Chinese, the expression that's used to translate mindfulness, I guess from the Indian traditions, is a pictogram, and I actually brought a copy of it here, that's made up of two characters. And one of the characters is the character for present moment and sometimes also for quiet. And the other 
uh, character is a composite that's made up of two characters. One of them is the character for home and the other is the character for heart. You add all those together, integrate them, and what the meaning becomes is mindfulness is a home for the heart in the present moment. And I'll, maybe I'll make a copy of this. I got the actual, uh, the actual characters. Uh, did a retreat that a few of you were on actually a few weeks ago. Um, and one of the retreatants uh, named Mintan, uh, born in China, and he drew the pictogram for mindfulness, which I will post on the bulletin board. But it has that connotation of being a home for the heart in the present moment. And I, I love that. Um, the English is decidedly inferior. Mindfulness, what is Victorian? I'm, okay, being a little judgmental. <laughs> so, um, so this evening, I want to focus more on the mindfulness dimension of things. And I think probably tomorrow night, focus a little bit more on the heart practices and particularly on loving kindness. So tonight I want to talk about what mindfulness is, how we practice especially the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, and then what some of the difficulties are that we face when we uh, practice mindfulness and how we can respond to those difficulties. That's my organization, as it were, for, for this evening. What mindfulness is, mindfulness of the body, what some of the typical difficulties are in practicing mindfulness and how we respond to those difficulties. In the, in the Buddhist tradition, in the teachings of the Buddha, mindfulness is the main tool for gaining freedom. So it's a very, very central practice and tool. And this is what it says in the text on the foundations of mindfulness. Practitioners, this is the direct path, meaning the path of mindfulness. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow, suffering, and lamentation namely the four foundations of mindfulness. It's from 2,600 years ago. Even as at this moment, mindfulness is almost, uh, we could say, exploding into Western culture. You know, I have several people who I uh, work with are teaching mindfulness in the Oakland schools where I think there've been five or 6,000 students have studied mindfulness. A dear friend, Diana Winston, went down to UCLA where the medical school received $23 million to study mindfulness in a medical and scientific context. It's being used in psychotherapy, in, uh, you know, in education, in medicine, in uh, study of the brain and so forth. So it's uh, even as that's being explored, it, the claim is that it's this very powerful and, and central practice. So what is it? What, is, what exactly is mindfulness? I want to talk about a few different qualities that characterize mindfulness. 
But I think before I do that, I thought I would read something that um, was written by a retreatant on a teen retreat where everyone was asked to write a poem about something. We were at the end of the retreat. Uh, they were invited to go on a, a two-hour vision quest in the forest and stay by themselves and write something. And this is what uh, Anika Baker-Lawrence wrote. Mindfulness. Mindless. Full-mindedness. Find moldness. nin molfes. Mindfulness. That's it. <laughs> so, and now the classical interpretation. <laughs> so, the uh, mindfulness has a few different core qualities which make some sense of why it can be deeply transformative. It's a very simple quality. In some ways, it's just taking a very... Uh, basic, normal uh, quality, the ability to pay attention, the ability to stay aware of what's in our field of attention. And what mindfulness does is it it refines that basic uh, capability. So mindfulness, or in the uh, Pali language, it's sati, S-A-T-I. And mindfulness may not be, I think it's not a great translation. Maybe there'll be better ones because for one thing, it um, in the Buddhist languages, there's not a radical split between mind and heart. And so every time you see the word mind, it actually also means heart. And so we, it could be better translated as mind heartfulness if we wanted to capture that. So perhaps we're waiting a better, waiting for better translation. So it has, the, it has a number of different qualities. First of all, it's a kind of bare attention. It's, a, it's an attention in which we are simply aware, in a sense without any complications, of whatever we're paying attention to, the breath, body sensations, walking, thoughts and emotions. We just, in a sense, register what's happening in our consciousness without any further gloss, as it were, without any further complications, interpretations, and so forth. So a lot of the training in in developing mindfulness is to actually keep it simple. Our our minds often want to be complicated, so we just keep it simple. And we're just with the sensation of the foot in walking meditation. We're just with the sensation of the breath without adding anything else, without trying to control the breath or force the breath. And we find how hard that is. It's hard to be simple and mindful. So the first sense of mindfulness is this quality of bare attention. There's also a kind of steadiness with the object. Let me see if I can find this. Uh, yeah, this is, this is from one of the commentaries, uh, probably 1,000, 1,500 years old, on the core text on mindfulness. And it says that mindfulness has the characteristic of not wobbling. Buddhist technical term, to wobble. We're doing non-wobble training. That's what we're doing. So mindfulness has the characteristic of not wobbling. 
that is not floating away from the object. And you can get a sense that's hard, right? It's not so easy not to wobble. It has the characteristic of not wobbling, not floating away from the object. Its, its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. It is manifested as guardianship. There's a sense in which mindfulness is taken to have a protective quality, which we'll, we'll go into later, that it actually saves us from a lot of the complications which can lead to suffering. So it's actually said that mindfulness is protective, is a kind of guardian of our spirit in a way, guardian of our nature. So it it's, uh, has a quality of bare attention, of not wobbling. It's also present-centered. We study experience as it manifests in the present moment. And we can study our experience of the past and the future, but we study it in the present moment. We study our experience of the past or future as a present-centered experience. What is the mind like when it's going to the future or going to the past? So we try to stay present-centered. Again, it keeps things quite simple. We just try to stay in the present moment and we see how hard that is. And we see how our attention seems to want to go all sorts of places and, and can get distracted quite easily. Another quality of mindfulness is that it's not reactive. It, can, it goes with the bare attention that we can simply be with what's happening, including both good stuff and hard stuff. And we simply know it as it is. So we can be with... Um, something that's very, very pleasant. And we can do so without trying to grasp hold of the pleasant and somehow keep it for eternity. We can be with pleasant sensations when we're eating. And we, uh, the non-reactivity means that we're not grabbing hold of the experience or pushing it away in some kind of automatic or compulsive way. So we can be with wonderfully pleasant experiences and stay with them and actually see what they're like. And we can also be with difficult experiences. We can be with unpleasant sensations in the body when our mindfulness is strong. And we can be with it and watch the tendencies to react, but still stay present. We can be with difficult emotions when our, when our mindfulness is strong and be with sadness or fear and not have it, have it somehow automatically trip, some, trip um, trip a wire that takes us down some strategic road or to some uh, habitual way of reacting. So mindfulness is non-reactive. Um, mindfulness in a related way is also non-judgmental. Mindfulness, in a sense, accepts all experience. It doesn't say... I want this experience and I don't want that experience. Quite an important point because when our aim is to be mindful, it doesn't matter if we're mindful of judgmental thoughts or being sleepy or um, um, being angry about something. Mindfulness is not about being always calm, centered or whatever. It's just about knowing what's happening in the present moment. Really crucial point. 
You know, it's not about, um, it's about knowing clearly what's going on. And that's really uh, the basis for wisdom. When we know what is actually happening, we can more readily summon our wisdom and see what's appropriate to do, how, what's appropriate to respond. It's that quality of simply knowing clearly, fully, non-reactively in the moment that makes wisdom possible because it really tells us what's there, what's real, and so forth. There can be, with mindfulness, a quality of interest. Mindfulness can be deeply interested in knowing what's there, a kind of, even a kind of curiosity. Mindfulness can be very deeply interested in, what is this? What is this sleepiness? Let me just investigate with excitement, being sleepy and restless. <laughs> I'm exaggerating the point a little bit there. But it ha- it, it ultimately, uh, mindfulness is very, very interested. We want to really explore experience, even the experience that's not much fun. And that's, that's what we as, we, as our mindfulness matures, we develop that capacity. And then the last thing I want to say is that Mindfulness, ultimately, as in that sense of the Chinese uh, characters for mindfulness, is ultimately heartfelt. It's ultimately warm and kind. That there is a way that just being present can open ourselves up to that sense of uh, holding our experience with warmth and kindness. Because in a sense, mindfulness opens up opens us up to a very fundamental quality of our intelligence, of our nature. And that nature is, has the qualities both of clear seeing and of that quality of warmth. And ultimately, they're integrated. So as our mindfulness gets stronger, we start to feel more of that quality of the warm heart integrated with the clear seeing. So I think you can see from that characterization of mindfulness how mindfulness can work well, what it, how it can really help us to develop that we, a lot of what happens in mindfulness is what? We see all the things that make mindfulness difficult. We see the ways that we're not so mindful. We see the ways that we're reactive. But there's something about mindfulness of reactivity which tends to transform the reactivity. When we bring in mindfulness, even if we're having a difficult experience, there's something transformative in it. From the point of view of the studies of the brain, once we have mindfulness, we're introducing new circuitry. And even if there's an old habit that's taking place right before our eyes, there's also something new happening, which in a sense, is starting to transform the old habit. That's the mindfulness. There's something else happening. So even when there's something difficult occurring, if we can bring some mindfulness in, that's already starting to transform things. It's starting to uh, cut through the old habit in a, in, a, in a powerful way. Another quality that happens as we're mindful is we just see more clearly the whole range of experience that we have. And I think in doing so, we can eventually be, in a sense, more compassionate. We see the range of experience. 
we have to watch out for what we might call the judgmental mind as we do mindfulness because our mindfulness tells us a lot about what our experience is like. And we can see a lot. We can see our habits a lot more. We can see certain tendencies, certain patterns. Not all of them flattery, right? Has anyone noticed? <laughs> and we have to be a little bit careful of that tendency for our mindfulness to give evidence with which I judge myself or others maybe. But especially ourselves that we can really sometimes use mindfulness in a way that can be harsh towards ourselves. So we want to watch out for that. When I teach on judgments, which I do a lot, I'm actually working on a book on the judgmental mind right now. And I've, I've had groups on that theme for about seven years on a monthly basis. So it's something that um, I knew, first of all, from direct experience of <laughs> right here. <laughs> so, but then have shared that with people. And we, what I call those judgments, those harsh judgments of self that come because there's more mindfulness, I call them stealth judgments because they fly under the radar and they sort of say, um, I'm just noticing something about from your mindfulness. I'm not really a judgment. I'm at another level. I'm not just your harsh everyday judgment. I'm something else. So watch out for those. So our um, starting point for mindfulness in this first day, and we'll continue with it tomorrow, is the mindfulness of the body, where we develop those aspects of mindfulness, but we bring it to uh, attend to the body. And we can really work with mindfulness of the body in a variety of ways. We can work with it in terms of uh, being aware being aware of the breath, being aware of our uh, walking, of our, of our parts of our body, our feet, our legs, our whole body as we walk. Uh, we can bring that mindfulness of the body just to walking down to the dining hall. In a way, we can continually come back to the body as we uh, develop our mindfulness. And it's a very central part of mindfulness practice. It's the first foundation. Uh, really, we could say that what the Buddha pointed to with these four foundations of mindfulness, we could say it's really four ways of being mindful or four areas in which to be mindful. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness, second foundation of feeling tone or which we'll explore later in the retreat of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is very important to see because when something pleasant happens, strong tendency to grab hold of it, something unpleasant happens, strong tendency to push it away. And when we track more carefully pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we start to be able to get closer to the origin of where a lot of our movement of mind is, you know, including a lot of our suffering. So when we get closer and watch the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's, it can be quite radical in, in um, helping us to see more clearly and transform some very old habits. So we develop feeling, mindfulness of the feeling tone, the third foundation. Um, I could translate as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, and the fourth foundation, mindfulness of some of the broader patterns of experience, which we'll get to all of these four foundations in the course of the retreat. So 
uh, mindfulness of the body, I think, is particularly important for uh, this culture where we're often quite separated from our body. That's why all this revolution and so many people teaching yoga and doing yoga is really very helpful. But it's happening at the same time that people are spending huge amounts of their time in virtual realities. They're kind of counter forces, right? You know, so we, um, you know, uh, it's very interesting. All these, everyone's spending so much time on the computer. It's very hard to be embodied on the computer. Not so easy. It's a real, I think it's a real issue for our practice. Sometimes we're on the computer, it's just like, where do we go? <laughs> What's our experience? But, but on the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of interest in grounding in the body because we're recognizing that we, we live in a very, very uh, mental culture. Mental meaning that we think a lot. It has its virtues, obviously, but it can have its, its uh, problems. A lot of us uh, probably grew up being somewhat disembodied. Anyone relate to that? doesn't sound so good, so you might not want to raise your hand quickly, but, but I, I can relate to that. I was an athlete, but I still wasn't really aware of my body. Kind of interesting, very physical. I was a sw competitive swimmer for about 10 years in um, age group and high school and college and AAU. And very physical, but I wasn't so aware of my body. You know? And I had this very strong experience when I was uh, a student and I was living in uh, Germany. I was a student in Germany for a year. And I was um, living on a farm and going, walking about two miles every day into town. This is in a small town in, uh, kind of, I guess, in southwest Germany in, near Stuttgart. A, I don't know if anyone knows Germany, but it was in, in Schwäbisch Hall. Uh, picturesque town. I, and I lived on this very interesting biodynamic farm operated by advocates of Rudolf Steiner. And it was very interesting, you know, like a very, they're doing all this interesting farming work. And I, I was living there for the summer and studying German. And I would walk about two miles every day uh, to go to my classes, which were pretty much all day, I think. And one day I was walking and you know, it was two miles, very picturesque, and I was just walking, and I suddenly had the thought, I'm thinking all the time. <laughs> Another thought, <laughs> right? I'm thinking all the time. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> that, was my, <laughs> that was my metaphor. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. I'm not really aware of my body, and it was actually, I mean, I'm saying in a way that's a little humorous, but it was actually kind of a shocking moment. You know, I'm not really aware of my body. And it was really kind of a turning point. And I um, started studying Tai Chi and yoga. And shortly after that, started a lot of meditation. A lot of my first experience of meditation was coming into my body, was being more present in my body. You know, as the phrase goes, coming back to my senses that I felt. And it was, it was a beautiful experience. I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences. And, and I think it's a really, the mindfulness of the body is a really crucial practice for bringing mindfulness into daily life. I think it's actually, in my experience, it's been probably the crucial aspect because how can I bring, how can I be mindful in daily life? I find that connecting with the body, if I'm in a meeting, if I'm talking with someone, 
to really stay grounded in my body has been a real major uh, aspect of becoming mindful in the flow of daily life. Very important, not so easy, not so easy when, with a very verbal cognitive culture. And so um, one of my teachers uh, who's been a really important mentor to me, who I now teach with quite a bit, John Travis. Some of you know John. Uh, John is really a teacher of the body, so a lot of my own personal training was just, and particularly in a, kind of a second phase of practice, was immersion in mindfulness of the body. And one, I remember one day, I was, I think I was kind of complaining when I was working with him. I was saying, you know, all these Asian teachers, you know, they live in monasteries. They have it easy. You know, I think I was saying something like that. You know, they, they have a lot of support. We have to live out in the world. There's not so much support out there. You know, it's not so easy. And, you know, and, um, and he said, and I really, it kind of electrified me. He said, let your body be your monastery. Let your body be your monastery. And it really stuck with me. That awareness of the body is always accessible. And it can really be that which we keep carrying, keep present, that helps us. That can really, it's always accessible. Mindfulness is always accessible. We don't need necessarily retreats or any special conditions, although these help a lot. And the, a lot of the training really occurs, occurs here. So it's really, it's really a very, very crucial. One of John's teachers once said, if the mind is in the body, no problems. So you could look, do a lot of your problems occur when you're not aware of your body? <laughs> you know, and, and that goes to various levels, the mind going off in all sorts of directions. And so there's a lot more I could say about that. Maybe I'll say that as we get later into the retreat, particularly maybe near the end about practicing with mindfulness of the body. But it's a very, very crucial uh, practice. And here we're training in that as a, one of our foundations, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of walking. And see if you can bring that quality of mindfulness into all the ordinary activities that are not part of our formal training. When we are just walking down to the dining hall, see if you can be aware of your body. In the dining hall, eating, Work with mindfulness of the body here through the senses, the taste and so forth. In your room, just work with mindfulness of the body. It's very, very central. And there's something that's just very um, beautiful about coming back to the body. I, uh, again, I was, uh, had coming to mind the, that poem by Allen Ginsberg that I mentioned last night where he says, he talked, he had a line, has a line where he talks about returning to the body where I was born. There's something very powerful about coming back and being more fully present in our bodies and having that be one of the foundations of our practice. So some of the qualities of what mindfulness is, some of the aspects of mindfulness of the body. And the third theme I wanted to talk about, which I'll, which I'll connect with the fourth theme, is some of the ways that mindfulness is difficult. Some of the ways that it's difficult to be mindful, it's difficult to stay mindful. And how do we work with 
these uh, challenges or difficulties. And I want to really uh, bow to everyone because the first day of a retreat is typically an experience of some of the difficulties of being mindful. Does anyone relate to that statement? <laughs> okay. uh, it's about, I would say, about um, almost everyone either raised their hand or implicitly raised their hands with a, a certain facial gesture, which I picked up on. So, um, so there are these difficulties. What? You know, where we get sleepy, we think that, um, especially with eyes closed, it's, it's easy to compare ourselves as being far inferior to all the other people here. Everyone else more or less has it together until you go to the group interviews. Then, <laughs> then you learn we're all more or less in the same soup. In fact, that's, that's not a bad metaphor. The first time I ever, I remember the first time I ever did a one-day retreat, let alone a seven-day retreat, I said, this is like pea soup this all-day meditation, just trying to find some clarity of my mind. And so we may, even if we practice a lot, we may, we may find ourselves sleepy, we might, might find our minds uh, wandering, we might find ourselves going through some um, challenge from our lives before we came to the retreat, a relationship, a situation, or whatever. And it's, it's helpful to know that one of the central teachings, as, as uh, some of you know, of the Buddha was precisely on the characteristic challenges of being mindful. And he called these the five nivarana, or usually translated as the five hindrances, which I think were a little bit, what, um, limited in some of the translations were all made around the year 1900 by British Victorian scholars who were, if I can say this without being overly judgmental, had moralistic streaks. And, and so hindrances, I prefer uh, actually what is a more literal translation rather than hindrances, it's the five difficult energies. The five difficult energies, the five energies which make mindfulness hard. I think it's actually from a translating point of view, more, more accurate. So what are, the, what are these five? Um, the first, and this is what I'll talk about for the rest of the evening, and talk about how to work with these. And these may be quite familiar <laughs> from, from the day. The first is uh, some kind of compulsive desire or attachment uh, or um, grasping. Some, more or less grasping after the pleasant. Sort of, it could, it could express itself as a, a very strong desire, almost like a compulsive desire. And these are, these are, um, these five are qualities that occur in, on the cushion, but also, of course, in daily life. The second is sort of the mirror image of that. It's kind of compulsive aversion or pushing away. The first is a compulsive grabbing hold. The second is a compulsive or very strong pushing away. The third, was translated by our friends, the Victorian scholars, as sloth and torpor. <laughs> it includes uh, sleepiness and just low energy, general, general slumping. 
And the fourth is uh, worry or restlessness or anxiety. And the fifth is doubt. So let me explore these five. And how to work with them, really. How to, and we'll find that one of the key ways to work with all of these is mindfulness. This is where, again, as I was mentioning, mindfulness has the uh, power when it's present to uh, start to start to mess up our usual habits. It can really start to cut through them. So I think I'll read a quotation about the first, which is a kind of uh, compulsive desire. It's quite close sometimes to greed. And I thought I'd read it. There's a wonderful book by a good friend of mine, one of my, one of my close friends, uh, called The Book of Qualities by uh, J. Ruth Gendler um, from uh, Omaha. Several of you are from Omaha. She's originally from Omaha. And she lives around the corner from me now in Berkeley. So, uh, but she wrote this beautiful book about quite a while ago um, uh, called The Book of Qualities, which takes about 50 or 60 human qualities and personifies them, turns them into real people. And I'll, I'll probably read from this book a few times uh, during the course of the retreat. So here's greed. Let me see where greed is. Greed is lonely and impulsive. He eats his food quickly and can't remember what it tastes like. He wants to make things stand still so he can understand, but he was always running somewhere himself. He was very cold as a child, and he still fears that he will never be warm enough. Greed is a tyrannical boss. He needs a reason for everything. He used to disguise his temper with a thin layer of politeness. Since he has become rich and famous, he doesn't bother with amenities. He masks his fear of women with contempt. He reports nightmares on the international commodities market. An advertising executive turned pornographer of the soul. A little intense, Ruth. <laughs> anyway, that's but it's um, the, the flavor of that kind of wanting, which we find sometimes on retreat a lot in our daily lives, the quality of wanting someone. And the problem is not so much desire. It's, the, it's, that com, it's, the, it's really the belief that sometimes is there when we have a kind of compulsive or very strong desire. And that is the belief that somehow this will make the present moment okay. Somehow that this will make me happy. If I only have one more serving of food, it's kind of a subtle, but there's, you can look carefully. There's a kind of subtle belief there that this extra thing that I will get will somehow make me happy, at least for a moment. Something to really look at. What's the deep belief there when we're wanting? You know, if only I have this. If I only have this extra portion, this extra something, this relationship, this job, then I will really be happy. And we really want to see that it's something about the, that underlying belief and the compulsive and somewhat unconscious nature of it that's the problem. Desire is not a problem. Wanting something, if we're clear about it, is not necessarily an issue. It's a, it's a natural part of our lives. 
you know, and nor is having is being with something pleasant necessarily a problem. We can just be aware and mindful of that, and it, it's really not an issue necessarily. So we can look at that when it occurs. We can notice when there is some kind of grabbing hold of something pleasant, most obvious probably with food, at least at this retreat, or we might grab hold of a pleasant sight or sound or a pleasant meditation experience. Uh, one of the ways that it manifests on retreats sometimes is in what we call uh, Vipassana romances. How many people know about Vipassana romances? It's a very interesting tendency where that wanting quality sometimes grabs hold of a person at the retreat, might not even be this retreat, it could be the other retreat, that somehow, well, we're supposed to just not be looking people so directly in the face, so it must be people's socks that we really notice. <laughs> anyway, but, but it's, a very, it's a very common experience, and I, I've experienced it multiple times, and, and it's where somehow, and it can happen whether we're married or not married, uh, we somehow have this deep sense that the wonderful partner of our dreams is near. <laughs> I won't ask who's, who's experienced that and definitely not ask about this retreat just in the first day. But it's something we can watch our minds. It's very, it's, you know, when we watch it, it's, it's, sometimes it just happens, you know. Gil Fronsdale, who's a teacher here, tells what, the story of one of his experiences where he was on a long retreat and he had this really strong fixation on this, on a woman. And at the end of the retreat, with a lot of excitement, you can, you can imagine this kind of builds up, with a lot of excitement, you know, he had certain fantasies about what might happen. You know, we sometimes joke that when in the Vipassana romance, one can go through what, um, courting or dating or um, getting engaged, marriage, children, and even divorce sometimes, <laughs> all in the, the, train, the train of thought. And Gil tells the story of really being uh, drawn to this person, and then after the retreat, going up to talk with, with her and finding out that she didn't speak English. And he said, I mean, wouldn't necessarily be bad, but for him in that instance, the whole thing that had been built up maybe for like two weeks just fell with a thud to the floor, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. And it just, and then he noticed uh, the next day he was looking at someone else, <laughs> right? Because it's more like it's, it's this wanting quality of the mind, right, that we can study and it manifests in all sorts of ways. So how do we, how do we work with that? How do we work with that wanting quality? Um, first of all, to be mindful of it, to be mindful, to notice when it's there, to, uh, to study it, to really explore what is wanting like when it manifests in the mind, when in our experience. What does it look like? What's it feel like in the body? Really to explore that, to um, sometimes we can ask ourselves, is there something deeper? Is the wanting sometimes covering over something that's beneath the wanting? You know, much as in the area of addictions, people often are trying to cover something over with the wanting. Is there something beneath the wanting? Sometimes we can get a sense that there is. 
a certain moderation can be very helpful. You know, moderation in food can be very helpful if we're having issues related to food, moderation in terms of sleeping and so forth. Um, in the text, uh, there are a number of commentaries on these five difficult energies. And they're actually texts which you can read where they list like 15 different antidotes for each of the five. <laughs> you know? And some of them are what I've mentioned. And some of them that appear on all the lists that are universally helpful are noble friendship and suitable conversation. So basically, I mean, I'm being a little humorous, but it's actually really reflects the quality of community, of having people we can compare notes with. You know, the fact that if, when we did our first group interviews, I think, I imagine there was something very reassuring that knowing that basically all of our minds and hearts work pretty much the same way. You know, but I think we, we often have a sense that I am uniquely flawed or weird. Anyone have that? I won't, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I certainly have seen that in myself. I am uniquely, there's something uniquely weird about me. And then, of course, members of my extended family would sometimes support that view. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't go further with that one. <laughs> so, um, so that community, very, very crucial. So the, the second of the difficult energies, the, the quality of a strong aversion we can experience that again many, many different ways. We can experience it as an aversion to what's happening physically in the body. Probably quite common today. We can be with, uh, we can find it difficult to be with unpleasant physical sensations. The guideline that we use in working with difficult physical sensations is to be clear about not doing damage to the body and if we're not doing damage to the body, and a general guideline for that is if there are sensations in your knee or maybe back that you sit with and they stay there for some time after the sitting, that might be something to be careful with. If they just immediately go when you end your sitting, that could be something to welcome if it's there and work with. And that's challenging. It's very, one of the great learnings in meditation for myself and for many people is to see how conditioned I was to always wanting things to be pleasant. It's a very strong conditioning. I think it's quite strong in our culture. When I've lived in other cultures, sometimes I think that we're, many of us, I won't say all of us, but many of us are very much, have lived a lot of our lives with a high level of comfort. And, when, and to actually experience discomfort is not something we're used to, you know, especially, I think, physical, um, physical discomfort. And so it can be very valuable to see how strong the conditioning is not to want to experience something unpleasant in my, in my area of my knee or my back and to learn to be with that. It, it really can build certain capacities to be with the unpleasant, to be with unpleasant emotions, probably... Many of us have a little more experience there, but still, in the mindfulness, we can learn how to be with the, uh, with the difficult sensations, you know, with the difficult emotions. We can, we can uh, work with that. 
Another form that this strong aversion occurs might be if we're experiencing ill will or anger. You know, we might, the opposite side of the Vipassana romance is the so-called Vipassana vendetta, <laughs> where we selectively focus on one or more individuals. And if we're really, you know, quite prolific with this, it might be multiple people. Um, and we tend to be triggered by something that someone does. It, you know, could be, I don't know. Well, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, it could be uh, the amount of food they put on their plate or, you know, we're pretty good here, but in a larger retreat, sometimes people come in late or they, they're very loud and they happen to sit right next to you. Vipassana vendettas can develop on that basis and have. One teacher I know developed this complex flowchart of all the Vipassana romances and vendettas at one retreat. It was quite interesting. You can imagine it's like this complex map of what's actually going on. Everyone's just sitting quietly. <laughs> so, so we can notice that. We can notice where those difficult states arise. Um, could be anger, could be something that's very un, that's not comfortable for us. Could be fear, could be something like that. And we can be with it. We can be with it in the present moment. Mindfulness, a key tool for all of this. Again, when we're noticing, um, we're noticing aversion, we can sometimes um, notice that there can be a fear of being with what's unpleasant. Sometimes we can go beneath what's manifesting and say, what's there? Is there something else there? Is there a fear there? Sometimes beneath our aversion expressed through something like anger, there can be an underlying pain that we're not in touch with. It's a powerful statement about, uh, James, from uh, James Baldwin, the great, the great writer, who said, I imagine that one of the reasons that people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. There's sometimes something beneath that, that, that sense of aversion. Sometimes if there's a lot of difficult physical sensation or, or difficult emotion, we can bring metta to the experience. We can bring loving kindness to ourselves. We can shift the energy. Sometimes if we're feeling a little bit unbalanced, by the difficult experiences, it's wise to do what we can to come back to balance. To if it's feeling like just a lot that I'm experiencing with this, you know, it's just been a lot of hindrances or difficult energies today, it's very skillful to just say, okay, time for a little loving kindness uh, to myself for a period of time. Very, very skillful to do that. It's a real, it's a real uh, antidote. Another antidote to this kind of aversion is uh, concentration. Actually, it can be used with both um, the attachment and the aversion. When we can actually, when our minds get quite still and clear, often those qualities are no longer present. So developing further concentration is, a fir is another antidote. And then there's also noble friendship and suitable conversation. So, so the... Uh, the third of these difficult energies is sloth and torpor, you know, which um, sleepiness, tiredness, and so forth. It can manifest as 
um, lack of energy, sleepiness, general fogginess of mind, a general sense of being in the soup, like I was mentioning, of just being uh, not so present, not so aware. It can manifest in all sorts of ways, some of them humorous. When I've, when I've done a lot of uh, loving kindness practice, you may, and you may have found sometimes the loving kindness phrases um, just get, they get, when the mind clarity is not there, they turn into very strange phrases. You know, like it's very interesting to do a lot of loving kindness because they're just these very humorous phrases sometimes emerge. So I think I mentioned that my phrase, my first phrase is may I be happy and contented. So I would notice sometimes when I was a little bit foggy, it would, it would become may I be happy and cemented. <laughs> You know, the other one was, may I be safe and free from harm? And, and I found myself saying once, may I be free from form? <laughs> uh, and my uh, colleague who I've sometimes taught with and Metta, she says once she had the phrase, may I be free from something? <laughs> <laughs> or we're doing the walking meditation and we're using the labels and we're doing, you know, we're saying lifting, moving, placing, shifting, and we're totally off on, you know, we're saying lifting when we're actually shifting and so forth. And, you know, and so it can manifest like that. So I mentioned, I think, in response to some of the questions that this, this uh, tiredness, sloth and torpor, so-called, can be there for one of several reasons. Sometimes we're sincerely, we're really tired in need of sleep. That's real sometimes. A lot of times there's more of a kind of imbalance of concentration and energy. And when, for example, when, when the uh, concentration is strong, is relatively strong, this sometimes happens when you first come to a retreat, but the energy is low, it can really feel sleepy and foggy. And so that would suggest an antidote would be to increase the energy. That's why it can be very helpful sometimes just to walk briskly, it could be to stand up, um, take some deep breaths, uh, um, take, a, take a vigorous walk or something like that. And sometimes, occasionally, the sloth and torpor is due to some resistance to what is there in our experience. Sometimes that is the case, that we may not want to be experiencing something and it manifests as a kind of sleepiness, almost like a defense mechanism. That occurs sometimes. So what to do with sleepiness? I mentioned some of them. You can we can increase the energy. Very key is just being mindful. Mindfulness is a universal antidote to all these states. It's fascinating sometimes to watch sleepiness with mindfulness. It's fascinating sometimes, especially when we know it's not a needing of sleep, but just some could be an imbalance of the energy. It could be something else. And we can notice, uh, we, so it's very helpful to make a label uh, related to the sleepiness, and we can actually sometimes notice with our mindfulness that the sleepiness can in a moment sometimes turn into very deep concentration, like a cloud lifting. It's fascinating to watch. And so try, it's not easy, but try to bring the mindfulness to the sleepy state as much as you can. The fourth of these difficult energies is some kind of restlessness it could manifest in extensive thinking, kind of nonstop thinking, could be restlessness of the body, anxiety, worry, some kind of uh, 
overactivity sometimes of our mind or our body just being restless. And sometimes that's the opposite side of the imbalance of concentration and energy that I just mentioned. Sometimes we have too much energy and not enough concentration. And that will manifest as restlessness. So sometimes it's skillful when we have restlessness. It may, and some of you I'm sure have experienced, sometimes as we practice, it's like more energy comes into our systems. And there are moments when there's more energy, but we can't integrate it all in our systems. And that will manifest as restlessness. So what to do in those times? First of all, be patient. And secondly, just work to develop some concentration. It could be to focus more in a focused way, in a um, rigorous way on the breath. It could be to, uh, it could be to give, it could be to count the breaths, it could be to really work with concentration in various, in various ways. Mostly not to worry about it. With all of these, we really get to be friends with them and don't worry so much about them. The last of these is doubt, which in some ways is the hardest because as long as we're continuing to practice, things are good. You know? And doubt can take us away from practicing. Doubt can make us stop practicing. It could be doubt about um, whether the practice is really working. It could be doubt about my own capabilities in the practice. You know? It can manifest in all sorts of ways. It can manifest as thinking, I don't know about this Vipassana. Maybe I should have stayed with Sufi dancing. <laughs> or, you know, I don't know. Mindfulness, it sounds good, but maybe it's just not for me. Maybe I'm really a, um, a devotional type and I should just be chanting all the time. Now, I'm, I'm not wanting to make fun of those, but just the, but the mind can go in those directions. It can really... It can, really, uh, it can really be actually hard. We can doubt ourselves, our own capabilities. Maybe I'm not really so spiritually mature. Maybe I'm fooling myself. You know, it can be linked with a lot of self-judgments, which can be very, very harsh. And so we have to really track those and, and be mindful of them. Um, it can be doubt about our basic goodness. You know, and sometimes that surfaces. I mentioned working with the theme of judgments with a lot of people over the last years. I see that a lot, you know, that a lot of us really have some harsh views about ourselves. And they're really workable. But it's really helpful to notice that. And that can lead to a certain amount of doubt. I'm, you know, there's some way that I'm basically off or I'm not really loving and so forth. And that can surface as we, as we practice. It's very, very helpful to know that everyone experiences all of these. And again, that's why the groups are very helpful um, in terms of the interviews, to know that everyone experiences this. So to close, I just want to give some general sense or general suggestion of how to work with these five qualities, these tendencies to grasp or to have this strong and compulsive desire and the opposite flavor of that, the pushing away the aversion, the, the sleepiness, the sloth and torpor, the restlessness, and then the, the doubt. In a way, we learn to make friends with, the, with, with each of these. They're very normal. We learn to say, okay, you're here, fine. 
welcome, stay for a while, not too long. <laughs> stay for a while, let me, let, me, um, let me notice you. We work with mindfulness, we notice them. We have to develop a lot of patience because they keep on coming. You know, we get to see them clearly. So I, I can't resist reading um, something. Let me see where this is. Um, one of my students wrote a bunch of um, interesting, uh, humorous ways of characterizing all of the core Buddhist teachings. So in this little manuscript, he has accounts, which I may read later. His name is Chuck Squire. He sometimes does retreats here. And he has one on the five hindrances, which I thought I'd read. It's in the form of a poem. There are things you can abandon without any loss. You don't need them, they don't help you, and the first one is sloth. <laughs> there are other, you can dance to this. There are others you can lose or simply throw upon the fire. Don't hesitate, renunci renunciate all sensual desire. You might worry that you'll miss these things if they aren't about. That's a good one to get rid of. Throw the worry out. If it got lost in closets or an airport hangar, who would really miss if they lost their anger? This one is so easy since it rhymes with throw out. When in doubt, don't forget to throw out your doubts. <laughs> so we get familiar with them. We develop a certain amount of patience. And ultimately, we learn how to be mindful of everything that comes and to see that the real practice is not about having this or that state present. Really crucial point. It's not about having calm or peacefulness or um, love or wisdom present. That's not the essence of the practice. So what is the essence of the practice, you might ask? <laughs> um, I want to tell a story to close. Uh, about a um, famous Zen teacher. And the Zen teacher was asked, what is the essence of enlightenment? By his students. And they were expecting a really grand answer. Maybe something metaphysical about the subtle ways that everything is a mirror to everything else. And there's this amazing multiform interpenetration of everything with everything that we can know through the fully coordinated sense of wisdom and compassion that manifests in the energetic body as a great blossoming of the heart and wisdom. Maybe he might have said that, but he didn't. <laughs> so what did he say? What, what is the essence of enlightenment? He said, appropriate response. Appropriate response. It's not about this or that state occurring. It's about being mindful and knowing what is present and then responding appropriately. And that's the essence of, that's the essence of wisdom. That's the essence of enlightenment. And so it means that we don't, when we have a difficult state, say, I wish there was calm and clarity here. Or if we do, we notice that. We try to be mindful of what's there and we simply do our best moment to moment. And that's the essence of the practice whether there's a beautiful state or a difficult state, that's our practice. So let's just sit for a moment to finish.
So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.